Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from a panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press 5 and 0 on your touchstone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, Norma, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's program. And today's program is What's New in the Treatment of Bladder Cancer? And today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and the Bladder Cancer Advocacy Network. And you'll be hearing more about that, which is a wonderful organization, and specifically focusing on the bladder cancer so as an advocacy group that you can access. That's wonderful. Um, and I want to say that uh, we are just delighted to have so many of you on the call today um, we have um, over over 200 participants on the call today, and you come from all over the United States. So you come from very many different regions, from both rural, urban, suburban, and frontier communities. So different parts of the country, different regions. And also, we have international participants from Canada, Egypt, India, Pakistan, Russia, and Taiwan. So a bit of a global call as well. And um, the information presented will be relevant, of course, to the U.S., and then, of course, each of you will apply it with, to your own specific country. Um, but this information that we want you to be sure to have. Now, today's program is supported by Bristol-Myers Squibb and Seattle Genetics, and I really want to thank them for their support of this program today. And, uh, and I'm also delighted to be partnering today with the Flatter Cancer Advocacy Network. So with that all being said, we now have the most wonderful speakers on our program today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Song Chow, and Dr. Chow is medical, with Medical Oncology, Swedish Cancer Institute. And Dr. Chow will be addressing an overview of bladder cancer, including staging and grading in the context of COVID-19, current standard of care and new treatment approaches, clinical trial updates, and the role of diagnostic technologies and precision medicine. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Sao. Thank you, Carolyn. Hi, everyone, and good morning and oh, good afternoon to the folks from the East Coast. Um, I would like to thank organizers from the Cancer Care Teleconference for the opportunity to talk about the current treatment of bladder cancer and with some new updates uh, from the perspective of medical oncologists. First, let me start with the overview of bladder cancer. Bladder cancer is one of the most common cancers. It is the eighth most common cause of cancer death among men. The most common type of bladder cancer in the United States is called urethral carcinoma. This accounts for about 90% of the bladder cancers. Patients with bladder cancer often present with symptoms such as blood in the urine, pain with urination, or frequency of urination or urgency. And for all this reason, they will, they will often refer to urologists for evaluation. And following that, the diagnosis of bladder cancer is based on a urine test, examining of the bladder through a cystoscopy, and the biopsy of the bladder tumor. Treatment options for bladder cancer are dictated by the stage and grade. Bladder cancer staging is a way in which we figure out how far a cancer has spread. It is based on three factors. One, how deep the cancer has penetrated into the tissue of the bladder. Two, whether the cancer involves, uh, in, uh, involves lymph nodes around the bladder. Three, whether the cancer has spread beyond the bladder to other organs. Great refers to how abnormal cancer cells appear to be on the microscope. Bladder tumors are classified as either low or high grade. Low grade cancers can recur, but very rarely invade. On the other hand, high grade cancers are more likely to recur and invade deep into the wall of the bladder. As the first step of staging, urologists need to perform a cystoscopy and surgically remove the tumor as much as possible. This procedure is called TURBT. 
which stands for transurethral resection of the bladder tumor. An important goal of TURBT is to ascertain whether cancer has invaded into the muscle layer of the bladder. If the tumor does not invade into the muscle layer, it is called a non-muscle invasive bladder cancer. If the cancer has grown into the muscle layer of the bladder, it is called a muscle invasive bladder cancer. This distinction is very important since treatment choices for non-muscle invasive bladder cancer and muscle invasive bladder cancer are quite different. Approximately 70% of newly diagnosed bladder cancer are non-muscle invasive disease. For those patients, the initial treatment is TURBT. This often followed by additional treatment, including installation of chemotherapy or BCG into the bladder. This is called intravascular therapy. Intravascular chemotherapy or BCG can reduce the chance of cancer recurrence. In some patients, bladder cancer persists and recurs despite of TURBT, intravascular BCG, or intravascular chemotherapy. For most of those patients, cystectomy, which means surgical removal of the whole bladder, is a standard of care. In select patients who are not a candidate for cystectomy or choose not to undergo cystectomy, we have a new option now available, which is approved by FDA just recently, early, uh, early this year. It is uh, immunotherapy called pembrolizumab, or the brand name is called Kachuda. It is given intravenously. And regarding the specific about Kachuda, we're gonna, I am going to uh, uh, elaborate a little bit further uh, later uh, when, I, when I talk about metastatic bladder cancer here. Um, next time, um, Next, I will go, I will going to give you an overview of treatments for muscle invasive bladder cancer. Muscle invasive bladder cancer is more aggressive because it carries a high risk of metastases and potentially death. Uh, the most common treatment for muscle invasive bladder cancer is surgically removal of the bladder along with lymph node dissection. It should be noted that only approximately 50% of patients with muscle invasive bladder cancer can be cured by surgery alone. There have been numerous studies that demonstrated treating muscle invasive bladder cancer with chemotherapy prior to surgery improved outcome and probability of cure. Therefore, combination of preoperative chemotherapy and surgery has been established as a standard of care for muscle invasive bladder cancer. However, preoperative chemotherapy is reserved for patients who are healthy enough to tolerate the treatment. In some cases, chemotherapy may be given after surgery instead of before surgery. Patients generally have a better chance tolerating and completing chemotherapy before the surgery than uh, getting it after surgery. For those patients who are not a candidate for surgery or decline surgery, concurrent chemotherapy and radiation therapy or radiation therapy alone can be considered. Chemotherapy and concurrent radiation should be performed after TURBT. And please keep in mind, the risk of cancer relapse after concurrent chemotherapy and radiation may be slightly higher than surgery. Therefore, surgery is still considered a standard in those patients, ideally combined with preoperative chemotherapy. For staging of bladder cancer, we need imaging studies to determine if the cancer has spread to lymph nodes or other organs. CT scan is the commonly used modality to detect abnormality along the urinary tract, including kidneys, ureters, and bladder, as well as enlarged lymph nodes or metastases uh, to other visual organs if there are any. I recommend CT scan of chest, abdomen, and pelvis as initial staging modality for all patients with muscle invasive bladder cancer. There is some evidence suggesting PET-CT, PET, uh, or PET scan 
maybe better modality than CT or MI in de detecting uh, metastases. And therefore, in some patients, when there is suspicion of lymph node involvement or multiple metastases, PET-CT may be considered. If a patient has bladder cancer already spread to multiple lymph nodes or other visual organs, that would be called metastatic bladder cancer. For those patients, systemic therapy will be standard care. Options of systemic therapy including chemotherapy, immunotherapy, and target therapy. The most commonly used chemotherapy regimen including cisplatin plus gemcitabine or carboplatin plus gemcitabine. There is also a multi-drug regimen called MVAC that we choose for patients who are fit enough for those regimens. For metastatic bladder cancer, chemotherapy is the most effective treatment, therefore recommended as first-line therapy. A small percentage of patients may, with metastases in lymph nodes or uh, even in the lung, may be cured by chemotherapy. The most common side effects of chemotherapy include fatigue, increased risk of infection, bleeding, hair loss, muscle sores, um, mouth sores, nausea, vomiting, and decreased hearing or ringing in the ears. There are also uh, side effects of neuropathy, such as tingling and numbness in the fingers and feet, um, and sometimes blood in, in the urine. Those side effects are usually temporary and resolved after treatment is completed. However, since chemotherapy is associated with significant side effects, it's important to determine if the patient is fit enough to tolerate chemotherapy. Up to 50% of patients with advanced bladder cancer are not candidates for chemotherapy because of age or coexisting medical conditions. For those patients, immunotherapy would be more appropriate. Several immunotherapy agents have been approved by FDA for treatment of advanced bladder cancer. They work through directly activating patients' immune system to attack cancer cells. Those immunotherapy are effective in only 20 to 30 percent of patients. However, among those patients who do respond to immunotherapy, we have observed a durable response in some patients. I was also asked to talk about precision medicine. Uh, precision medicine is an emerging approach for cancer treatment targeting specific gene mutation or proteins that contribute to cancer growth. It allows us to predict more precisely which treatment strategy for certain type of cancer would work in which group of patients. It is different to the one-size-fits-all approach, such as chemotherapy. Currently, there are two options of targeted therapy approved by FDA for treatment of bladder cancer, namely adafertinib and infortinib redotin. The brand name is called PADCEV, P-A-D-C-E-V. Uh, Adafertinib was approved in April 2019. It is an oral medicine targeting mutations in genes called FGFR3 or FGFR2. Tadstiff was approved in December 2019. This is new development since our last talk in October last year. Since Dr. Koshkin will talk more about target therapy more extensively, I will not elaborate further here. For the last part of my talk, I would like to spend some time talking about the care for bladder cancer patients in the context of COVID-19. As we all know, this is a very challenging time for all of us. Patients with bladder cancer are more vulnerable to coronavirus infections and serious complications for COVID because they are aged and oftentimes compromised immune system due to chemotherapy. Data from China has shown high risk of developing serious complications among patients with cancer in general, 
when they contract COVID-19 compared to those who had no such underlying conditions. In terms of cancer care from medical oncology perspective, I think it is very important to have individualized risk versus benefit assessment for each patient based on their age, coexisting medical conditions, cancer stage, and prognosis. For potentially curable bladder cancer, I recommend all efforts should be made to maximize chance of cure by using standard of care, at the same time minimizing the exposure to COVID-19 exposure following the recommended guidelines, including social distancing, wearing masks, and self-isolation if symptomatic, and low threshold of testing COVID-19 uh, coronavirus uh, if they have symptoms. For patients with incurable metabolic bladder cancer, again, individualized assessment of potential benefit of control the cancer-related symptoms through continuing chemotherapy or other treatment versus the potential risk of COVID-19 infection due to immunocompromised state should be considered. And those decisions should be made by treating physicians patients together. And also, I would like to mention that enrollment in the clinical trial has been also significantly impacted by coronavirus pandemic. Many of the clinical trials in my, institu in my institute and along with other uh, cancer centers have been on hold uh, due to coronavirus pandemic. And the other aspect is due to uh, limited due to travel restriction and risk related to travel, it has become more and more difficult for patients to travel to different locations or states to explore clinical uh, trial options. And we are gradually reopening some of the trial and we often require uh, approval by a committee uh, on an individual basis uh, based on a patient's uh, need of uh, urgency of the need of enrollment and the potential risk of uh, coronavirus uh, exposure. So um, I think that's uh, pretty much what I have uh, today. Uh, I will leave um, additional uh, aspects of the bladder cancer care to Dr. Kostin and other experts. Thank you for your attention. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. South. That was really outstanding. What a wonderful way to start the program. Excellent information for everybody. And um, I know there'll be questions to you certainly during the Q&A. So thank you for that really expert presentation. Thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Vadim Koshkin. Dr. Koshkin is with the genital urinary, he's a genital urinary medical oncologist. He's assistant professor, University of California, San Francisco. Dr. Kostin was going to be addressing targeted treatments and predicting response to treatments, the emerging role of immunotherapy, managing symptoms, treatment side effects, discomfort and pain in the context of COVID-19, and guidelines for preparing for telehealth appointments with the healthcare team about your quality of life concerns and social distancing to decrease your exposure to COVID-19. It's really my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Kostin. Thank you so much for the very nice introduction and uh, a really great um, summary by Dr. Zhao to, to start off, and uh, I'll, uh, I'll um, follow up on some of the themes that he discussed. Um, I also want to say I really appreciate, um, again, the opportunity, and I'm really honored to speak to this large and international audience. Uh, I'll start out by discussing the targeted treatments, which is um, something that Dr. Zhao also brought up and what we're talking about. Um, Currently, there are two targeted treatments that are approved for bladder cancer, specifically. Both of these are recent approvals, and there are more in the works. But what does a targeted treatment mean exactly? I think it's, it's good to um, start out with discussing that. Well, it means that unlike the standard chemotherapy regimens that have been around for several decades now, these new targeted agents target something specifically about the cancer, and this allows them to preferentially affect that cancer and therefore potentially be more effective, potentially minimize side effects. Standard chemotherapy, that we call cytotoxic chemotherapy, 
affects and kills all rapidly dividing cells in the body. That's kind of broadly speaking what it does. A lot of these rapidly dividing and metabolically active cells are cancer cells, and therefore chemotherapy is active against them and, and is frequently active against cancer. But it can affect normal cells also, other dividing cells in the body, and that accounts for some of the chemotherapy side effects. As I mentioned, targeted agents affect the cancer preferentially, and in bladder cancers, they affect bladder cancers preferentially. Here, uh, I'm discussing, again, specifically cancers that are, bladder cancers that are metastatic, so have moved outside the bladder, because that's the setting, that's the situation for which these agents are approved. The first drug is called erdafitinib. In 2019, so about a year ago, now actually a little over a year ago, it was in April, it became the first targeted agent that received FDA approval in metastatic bladder cancer. About 20% of bladder cancer tumors have a specific mutation in the DNA of their cells. So it's in a gene called uh, FGFR3, which uh, Dr. Zell brought up as well. Uh, the, it, it, in this particular situation, it is essentially what makes them cancerous. It makes them grow and divide uncontrollably, so something we also call a driver mutation. This particular drug, or the fitnib, taken in the pill form, so it's an oral drug, acts against this mutation and against this actually potential vulnerability of the cancer. Uh, it reverses this, this process of cancer growth, leading to the death of cancer cells, and consequently to tumor shrinkage or at least tumor stability if the cancer doesn't continue to grow. This drug, erdafitinib, is approved for patients with metastatic bladder cancer who have progressed on prior chemotherapy, so who have received prior chemotherapy and now the cancer is growing um, again. Uh, it is not available for all patients because it will only potentially work for the 20% of bladder, metastatic bladder cancer patients who have that particular mutation or, or a series of mutations in FGFR3. And that is why, in particular, it is important to check for that mutation in all metastatic bladder tumors. And at this point, we, we pretty standardly investigate the mutations or mutational landscape in metastatic bladder tumors. The second targeted agent that was approved for bladder cancer patients, um, this was at the very end of 2019, is in also as, as um, Dr. Zhao brought up, or its, uh, its um, uh, trade name is, is PADSA. Um, in fact, the last time discussing the promising trials for this drug and that it might be approved soon. And now, only a few months later, uh, it is approved, and we've actually used it quite a bit and across, uh, across the country, across the United States, oncologists have used it quite a bit for patients with metastatic bladder cancer, generally who have received both chemotherapy and immunotherapy drugs. Increasingly, this drug is, again, being used widely because previously there were pretty limited additional treatment options for metastatic bladder cancer patients in that situation, and now this drug is available. This drug is uh, what's called an antibody drug conjugate. So basically, uh, one can think of it as sort of a form of targeted chemotherapy. What I mean by that is that uh, it does have a chemotherapy component, but it also is comprised of an antibody linked to that chemotherapy component, and an, and an antibody is a protein that is designed to target a specific other protein in the body. Um, the protein that this antibody is designed to target, called Mectin-4, is located mostly in bladder cancer cells, so it's like it's essentially a, like a calling card that gives them away. Uh, this antibody is linked to the active chemotherapy agent. When uh, it attaches to the specific protein that is designed to target, that again, in some bladder cancer cells, it is taken out by the bladder cancer cell, and inside the cell, the, the chemotherapy component uh, essentially acts uh, uh, like a targeted missile and basically destroys the cell. Um, so in this way, we can essentially get um, the therapy more effectively specifically to bladder cancer cells, and that's why, again, this is called a targeted treatment. 
this drug was approved based on data from a clinical trial that was presented just about a year ago, last June, that was very promising. So it included many patients with metastatic bladder cancer who were uh, previously treated with both chemotherapy and immunotherapy, and uh, unfortunately their cancers still continue to grow after that treatment. Uh, these patients on the clinical trial, when treated with this Bortomavidose had very good response to this drug, not eventually after the FDA had a chance to review the data, what led to its approval um, by the FDA for, for use in the United States in December. Um, it is reasonably well tolerated relative to traditional chemotherapy drugs, again, because in part because it's a target agent. But as all drugs, it does have some side effects. Um, most common for this drug are uh, fatigue, peripheral neuropathy, and also rashes. There are less common side effects as well that we watch for. Um, unlike for the fitment, the other targeted agent that was mentioned earlier, uh, insertimabidotin is really available for any patients with metastatic bladder cancer who, as long as that patient has had prior treatment with chemotherapy and immunotherapy. So in other words, to, um, to get this drug, uh, no specific mutational testing or results of, of the mutational testing are needed. There is um, additionally another similar targeted agent that is not yet approved, but uh, currently in the works. Uh, this drug is called uh, Substituzumab govitekin, or SG. Um, it's a tough name, and I myself, but... Um, uh, it is uh, still uh, in the clinical trial phase of development, so although it's, it has shown promising data, uh, it's not yet as far along as, as important as a uh, and has not yet been approved. But it has a similar mechanism of action in that it is an antibody that targets a specific protein, which is a different protein than what important as targets. And it's linked to a, to a chemotherapy drug. So uh, this drug actually was recently approved in uh, breast cancer, and so there, there's certainly interest in, in uh, investigating it further for as a potential therapy in bladder cancer as well. Um, I will next discuss uh, predicting potential response to treatment. Um, in metastatic bladder cancer, currently there are several ways in which we can tailor specific therapies to the patient and specifically find the right therapy for the patient. Uh, all patients with metastatic bladder cancer should have their cancer tested for mutations uh, that may be present in the cancer and that may make this cancer in particular vulnerable to certain drugs. The one approved uh, uh, indication here is the FGFR3 mutation that I described earlier, which uh, would make the patient eligible for potential treatment with erdafitinib. Uh, currently, that is the only such FDA-approved treatment in bladder cancer based specifically on the results of, of mutations in the tumor. However, there may also be other mutations in the tumor that may make the tumor and consequently the patient eligible for other um, investigational treatments, so specifically clinical trials. Aside from, from this, um, that, that is assessing the mutations in the tumor, much more work remains to be done regarding um, uh, biomarkers in bladder cancer that um, basically can identify uh, uh, patients as, as more or less likely to benefit from certain treatments. There are some markers that are potentially predictive of response to immunotherapy, for instance. This includes pdl one expression in the tumor, which in certain circumstances is used to make clinical decisions for when to give uh, a patients with metastatic bladder cancer immunotherapy drugs. Um, it is not a great marker, however, because although patients who have high pdl one expression are more likely to respond to immunotherapy agents, patients with low expression can respond to, to immunotherapy as well. So more work uh, remains to be done with that. Uh, this, of course, brings me to the topic of immunotherapy, which, um, which also uh, Dr. Zhao covered to some extent. Um, 
Over the past five years, really, in bladder cancer, and for a bit longer than some other cancers, immunotherapy drugs have really arrived uh, on the scene as, as the mainstay of treatment for metastatic disease. Um, the other name for these drugs are, or another sort of common name, are checkpoint inhibitors. Again, they work differently from chemotherapy by, um, rather than killing rapidly dividing cells, they actually act on specific cells in the immune system and uh, activate the immune system to fight the cancer. Uh, but this effect uh, accounts for some of their side effects as well, because sometimes they can activate the immune system too much, such that not just the cancer is affected, but also normal organs. Mostly these drugs, these are immunotherapy drugs or checkpoint inhibitors, are approved for metastatic disease, and they're most commonly used uh, usually as second-line treatment after patients finish with chemotherapy. Uh, that may increasingly change in the next few months or, or, or a year or so as we wait for results of certain clinical trials to come out. But right now, that's the general sequence, that patients with metastatic bladder cancer get chemotherapy first and then immunotherapy if they need it. Uh, the two most common immunotherapy drugs that are used are uh, pembrolizumab, or Keytruda, and atezolizumab, or Keycentric. There are a few others that are approved, um, including nivolumab, avalumab, and dervalumab. Uh, in addition to being used in the metastatic space, for, for uh, patients with metastatic bladder cancer. Checkpoint inhibitors are also increasingly used across spectrum of disease in, in uh, basically earlier stages of bladder cancer as well, such as in non-muscle invasive disease, which again, Dr. Zhao covered with um, uh, regarding the discussion of the approval of pembrolizumab uh, in patients with non-muscle invasive bladder cancer. And there are also ongoing clinical trials of using um, these drugs, the checkpoint inhibitors, in for muscle invasive disease um, around the time of definitive bladder removal surgery. Um, and so either either before that surgery, that's called neoadjuvant therapy, or after surgery, and that's called adjuvant therapy. Um, so uh, all this is to say that um, these. Uh, this particular use uh, of these agents for muscle invasive disease currently is investigational, so it's only available in clinical trials and not yet approved. However, it is uh, quite likely that um, in, the, in, the, in the coming months, years, the number of patients with bladder cancer who are eligible to be treated with immunotherapy drugs will expand beyond just patients with metastatic disease, and, and more patients will be getting this. Finally, I will just um, um, wrap up by, um, again, discussing somewhat, uh, you know, the current situation around COVID-19 and how, how that epidemic has really changed some aspects of our medical practice. Uh, many doctor's offices, including my own, are now using telehealth visits a lot more. Um, for you know, patients potentially not familiar with what that means, it's, it's essentially doing a a, um, an appointment, a medical appointment with a doctor uh, over video. So instead of um, having the interaction in person in clinic, you do it over video, like you would, for instance, uh, over FaceTime on an iPhone. Um, in, uh, it may be different in other doctor's offices. In my particular office, we, we uh, use uh, uh, Zoom for these video visits, um, for these telehealth visits, and that, that creates uh, a more secure connection, um, and uh, and that's uh, that's really kind of been incorporated as part of our workflow. Uh, we were doing this to some extent even before this epidemic, um, but uh, and that's for you know for patients. Just need over video, but really since um, uh, the beginning of the of, of this uh, you know, current situation, current pandemic, with the, with the necessity for social distancing, essentially all our visits now are done over video, even for patients getting treatment. So they, they do the uh, video visit, and then they, they, they go to infusion for treatment. Um, I would, uh, so for um, patients who are using this with their doctor, um, uh, for those maybe not sort of as familiar with what this technology is or how, or how to use it, I would really recommend one of the things to do to prepare for the visit is to um, 
uh, certainly download the specific program or platform being used in advance, and to really kind of maybe do a walkthrough to make sure you know how it works. So in other words, really the, the day of your first telehealth visit appointment should ideally not be the first day that a patient is, is logging on to this. And I'll, I'll say that, you know, these platforms and devices um, that we use for telehealth visits, they, they certainly do not work perfectly. But at this point, they really have become a very helpful tool to keep the clinic functioning, um, you know, during this challenging time. I'll, I'll also finally wrap up just by um, um, reminding patients of the importance um, of, of keeping the, uh, or extending to social distancing guidelines. Uh, these are published by uh, the CDC, uh, Centers for Disease Control in particular. Um, there are other places to, to resources to potentially find them. But the, the important um, uh, uh, sort of guidelines here are to, of course, keep six feet away from other people generally, to generally wear a mask you know, when interacting with others, um, if they're with people you do not live with. Um, also, additionally, you really do want to not gather in groups. Um, and, of course, it's very uh, important to wash hands frequently, really uh, also avoid uh, touching the face as much as possible, though that is, of course, uh, uh, in some ways, hard to Finally, I'll just say that, you know, despite the current difficulty around, around COVID and, um, and a lot of concern around it, uh, I think it is important to, to, stay, to stay optimistic in this situation and to remember that, again, I, I think things will get better with this. We'll, we'll find a new normal of how to really um, well function as a society in the middle of this, uh, of this pandemic and also to deliver, to continue to deliver high-quality medical care. And I think we've already, you know, myself and providers around the country are, are adjusting to this, and I think, um, I, I, I think you know, there is a way out of this for sure. Um, and I'll just wrap up on that note. I thank you again for your attention. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Koshkin. That was outstanding um, and really very, um, very helpful to explain in detail about the telehealth visits and how important they are, those appointments, and how to prepare for them, um, and also just about many of the newer treatments that are available. So thank you so much. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. And our next speaker is Ms. Diana Burden. Ms. Burden is an oncology dietitian at the Michael E. DeBake EVA Medical Center. And she'll be addressing nutrition and hydration concerns and tips. And it's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Burden. Thank you so much, Carolyn. I'm excited to be part of today's presentation. Nutrition and hydration are essential um, in your tolerance to treatment and providing you the energy um, to do the things you enjoy doing, so your quality of life as well. During your treatment, um, even maybe before your treatment and after your treatment, your diet might be modified um, based on how you're doing um, as, as you're presenting, if you're having any specific side effects or any issues. Um, diet can be modified at times to help dealing with those, to um, keep your intake up, to keep your energy up. And so um, just to give some examples of potential side effects that can happen during treatment, um, things like dry mouth, difficulties um, with taste, sometimes foods don't taste the way they usually taste, maybe a decrease in appetite, maybe you're just fatigued more, you're not really feeling like getting up and preparing meals and, and cooking and that sort of thing. <clears throat> so during your course of treatment, not only managing and, and helping to address some of the side effects and getting um, you to the point to where you're getting into nutrition that you need, um, there may be some treatments that require additional calories and protein throughout that, that time for your body to have what it needs to recover. And so meeting with your dietitian can be very helpful in understanding your unique nutrition goals. And this doesn't only include protein and calories, but it also is about hydration. Oftentimes we forget about hydration um, when we're trying to get our loved ones hit to eat or if you're focusing on eating, sometimes hydration can be overlooked. And so we'll talk a little bit about some of the concerns with hydration. Um, one thing I do want to mention is I'll, a lot of times I'll have patients come in and they'll tell me, oh, you know, it's okay, I have weight to lose, I don't, I don't need to worry about it, and they've had um, a significant weight change. 
um, one thing I want you to understand is that when you're going through cancer treatment and your body is challenged, um, weight loss can look different. And so what I mean by that is you can lose more muscle than you would fat. And the challenge with that is uh, our muscle gives us so many um, important benefits. It helps us with getting up to do the things we want to do. It gives us the endurance to do the things we need to do. And it takes a while to build muscle back. And so one of the goals you may discuss with your healthcare team is um, weight management. You know, let's maintain your weight where you are. Um, and at different times of your treatment, that may change. So talking with your dietitian about what your needs are at different points throughout your treatment is very helpful and important. Um, the side effects I discussed um, as potential side effects um, are just in general. Everybody has a different course as they go through this journey. And so communicating with your healthcare team is essential. Um, oftentimes, there are medications that a physician can give you that will help address some of the side effects. Um, the degree of the side effects can be unique from one patient to another. And so whenever you talk with your healthcare team and they give you um, interventions to help with this, please follow the directions. Um, even if you're not feeling the symptom, it may be that the, the medication or the treatment is helping with managing that. So staying on that treatment um, is very important. If you find that you're struggling with eating, keeping a record um, of what's giving you difficulty um, is important. It can really help your dietitian guide you into how to modify your diet and maybe make some other suggestions um, that might be better tolerated. And back to dehydration. Um, dehydration is is a sneaky little thing. Um, it can kind of creep up on us. Like I said, we aren't really paying attention all the time to how much food we're taking, and sometimes we're sleeping more. Um, you might find that you're more fatigued and you're just not engaging and eating and drinking as much um, as you do on a regular basis. And so side effects that can um, pop up as, an, as a, a result of dehydration are things like increased nausea, fatigue, headaches, um, making you feel dizzy and unstable, that can all be related to hydration. So just as a reminder, fluid is anything that's liquid at room temperature. This includes water, milk, juices, sports drinks. A general guideline is most people need between 8 and 10 8 ounces of fluid a day. Um, but treatments can increase that. Um, and so it just, I guess it depends on your unique needs. So please talk with your healthcare team. These may be some things that come up in conversation. Um, in closing, you know, there are several members of the healthcare team here to help you, dedicated to helping you through this journey. So please reach out to them, communicate with them, take notes, have a second set of eyes and ears when you go to appointments, and even before you go to appointments to help ensure that you're getting all of those things that you've been struggling with um, down on a piece of paper so that if in the conversations get a little um, misdirected and you kind of forget to talk about the things that you've been experiencing, um, you'll have that there to remind you. Um, so glad I was able to be part of today's presentation. I'm going to hand the line back over to Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Graydon. That was really excellent, outstanding, and uh, very informative. And people always like to have information about nutrition and hydration. It's very important. And I know there'll be questions to you during the Q&A as well, so thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Stephanie Chisholm, and Dr. Chisholm is Director of Education and Research, Bladder Cancer Advocacy Network, BCAN, and she is a partnering organization with us on today's program. And she's going to talk about the Bladder Cancer Advocacy Network, BCAN free programs and conferences. And it's really my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Chisholm. Thank you so much, Carolyn, and it really is a pleasure to be part of this presentation. You know, it's really heartening to see that uh, I've been with Beacon since 2000 and, uh, oh gosh, it's about six years now. And it's really been an amazing change in the options that are available to the bladder cancer community with the advent of the immunotherapies, with the new targeted therapies and these other things that are in the works. There's so many clinical trials happening right now. And so much of what Beacon does is help to educate and inform the patient community about their treatment options. 
We, as a matter of fact, just released our new 2020 edition of Bladder Cancer Basics, and anyone is free to download that online. If you go visit us at bcan.org, you can find our signature Bladder Cancer Basics. On there, you can also watch webinars that deal not only with things like nutrition, as we just talked about, but other quality of life issues. They're all under our patient insight webinars. And the fact that everyone has mentioned COVID-19, um, Beacon, of course, is not immune to bringing up that topic. It's really an important topic for patients right now. And we've put together with some expert advice a number of frequently, frequently asked questions and five different regional webinars talking about the differences in how COVID-19 is impacting bladder cancer care in the Northeast, Southeast, and all around the country. And then also we did a program on our Facebook Live event, which really was intended to help people feel grounded and a little more centered in this unstable time because this is impacting the entire community and bladder cancer patients and their family members are very stressed out about it. So we welcome everybody to come and visit us again at bcan.org and look for some specific information on there. Thank you very much. Okay, well, thank you so much, Dr. Schill. That was excellent and really a wonderful resource for everybody on this program today. And please do take advantage of their um, information. I actually want to say to all of you that on after today's program, you'll all be getting an evaluation. And, of course, about two days, we'll get your evaluation. And the evaluation, of course, we definitely want your feedback. But the evaluation also will include all the resources that are mentioned during the program today. So you'll get all the details about um, the can in terms of how to access that organization, both their telephone and their website, and basically everything you need to know so you can basically make use of that organization with additional questions. So thank you so much, um, Dutchson. That was really excellent. And we're going to be taking questions shortly. I'm going to say a few words about about cancer care, and then we're going to take questions. So I'm Carolyn Mester. I am an oncology social worker, and I'm director of education and training with cancer care. And I wanted to review with you, uh, again, the free uh, psychosocial services and programs that you can access from cancer care. So what does that actually mean? Well, we do offer both practical, financial, and a chance to talk with one of our oncology social workers about any of your emotional or, or social concerns that you may have at this time, about bladder cancer, about some of the issues of having cancer in this today's contemporary world as well with COVID-19. And so um, the, you can contact Cancer Care at our, we have an 800 number, our hotline, or you can visit our website. And again, that information is available to all of you. I think you've all received that information when you register, but you'll be getting that information again um, at the end of the program as well um, in evaluation forms. But the the services, so many people call us for, for basically financial assistance and and also we have a copay foundation. And those two services are particularly available to people in the United States, the financial assistance and copay assistance. However, the, all the other services are available to people throughout the world. And to some extent, many people do either often go to our website for people internationally and for people who are in the U.S. They often call our hotline. And we'll ask for all sorts of questions, like how do I talk to my employer about my cancer? Or do I need to talk to my employer about my cancer? Why do I need to do that? Or how do I talk with my children about my cancer or my grandchildren? Um, so there are many different questions and concerns. And how do I go about living my life in the context of having both bladder cancer and in the context of the concerns about the social distancing and how do I how do I practice that? What do I do? So these are all services that we provide. I also want to mention that we do have a unique pet program. Um, for those of you who have pets, um, you may have a dog that needs to be walked um, or a cat that needs care. And we do provide services to help you with that. And you can simply call us and we can go over those services with you. But they're very useful to people, especially if you don't have the energy or are told to kind of restrict some of your activities. It, it's helpful to have somebody else take care of your pets for you since they can be a great source of support for many of you. So with that being said, we now have time for questions. And I'm going to ask uh, um, 
Norma to bring our speakers on board and to actually uh, explain to everybody how to uh, queue up for questions. So we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. Norma? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then one on your touchstone telephone. If your question has been answered or you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking ask a question. And um, we have a question from one of our online participants. Um, and this one I'm going to address to Dr. Kostin first. Um, will my chemo brain go away after BCG? Oh, well, um, yeah, that's, that's a very good question. So, well, both cytokines are kind of quite individualized, right? So, and, and BCG is not. Um, you know, well, not technically chemotherapy can certainly have those side effects as well. Um, typically, um, what what I've seen uh, in patients who uh, you know have had this as a side effect after well, either chemotherapy or in this case BCG, uh, there there is improvement. Um, but again, that's I, I would say that's kind of highly pretty individualized and, um, you know, something that definitely you should also discuss with, you know, specifically with your treating provider, um, especially if you're, if you're concerned that sort of enough time has passed that, uh, and, and things have not improved that substantially. Excellent. Thank you. And Dr. Stout, do you want to add to that as well? Yeah, well, um, again, I think uh, many treatments regardless of chemotherapy or BCG, uh, which is immunotherapy, could essentially cause some um, cognitive um, change uh, among patients uh, who are on active treatment. But also keep in mind that uh, there are uh, essentially side effects that from other medicine that you would use along those with this treatment, that could also be the reason that um, leading the cognitive uh, function change. For example, the anti-emetic, uh, the, the nausea medicine you're taking, the pain medicine you're taking. So it's important to keep, um, you know, to keep that in mind and also talk to your doctor, uh, you know, to figure out which, which medicine could be responsible for this and potentially you can have a better uh, uh, strategy to deal with them. Yeah. That's a very excellent point. Um, and definitely goes to your healthcare team. Um, and there can be an interaction, what you're saying, is between other medications you may be taking, other things you're doing. Um, and I guess, Dr. Shah, do you want to comment on just um, when you start your treatment or even in the midst of treatment, is it important to tell the, your, your healthcare team everything you're taking? Um, both prescribed medication and non-prescribed medication. Could you comment on that a bit as well? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's very important. Uh, again, the prescription medicine is always uh, reviewed and documented by uh, our uh, clinical staff, nurse, and myself uh, when a patient comes in. And we do uh, pay attention to significant change if any new medicine is added and potentially a new uh, side effect. Uh, was noted by the patient. Um, now, the herbal medicine is a bit tricky because uh, there are not a whole lot of uh, uh, guidelines, as you know, and also there are not, not a whole lot of tools you know, available to us to analyze potential interaction between herbal supplements with the uh, uh, prescription medicines. So um, I often go to uh, Memorial Sloan Cancer and Cancer Center website because they have a very good. Uh, integrative medicine uh, website with uh, a very comprehensive list of herbal supplements uh, that what potentially side effect and uh, there's any reference that you can look for uh, when you need uh, more information. But again, that uh, herbal, herbal supplement uh, often uh, is a little bit difficult and challenge, challenging to figure out whether they could uh, uh, interact with the medicine we're giving. Um, I don't have any strong recommendation because there is none uh, in terms of which herbal medicine is good or not uh, for a particular type of treatment or cancer. So, um, so I, I have to, you know, evaluate this uh, with patient on an individual basis. Yeah. Excellent. Thank you. And, and actually, it's a very good point that people want to share with their healthcare team anything they're taking, even if it's an herbal tea or something or, or anything. 
And Dr. Um, Christian, do you want to comment on this as well? Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so I, I certainly echo what, what Dr. Zhao um, is saying in that um, it's certainly very important to uh, definitely let your provider know um, anything that you're taking, um, because so in addition to prescription medications, you know, many patients do take supplements um, and, and, and similar drugs. Um, and, and sometimes patients uh, forget that those are, uh, although not prescription drugs, are also, um, uh, you know, basically substances that can really affect how your body processes other medications. So that, that's why it's, it's, it's potentially, you know, very important for your, your physician and your treatment team to really know all the things that, that, that you are on as a patient uh, because that, that can affect, um, uh, you know, again, how, how certain uh, medicines are, are, are processed by your body and therefore how, how effective they are or even affect their, uh, you know, potentially associated side effects. Um, and, you know, there are websites um, and in, including some very um, sort of well-vetted and validated ones, um, like the MSCCC website. Um, and also, you know, my institution, I, I often rely on the integrative medicine um, department uh, that we have as for advice with this. Um, but, yeah, it's just uh, this, this all just um, kind of goes back to really – um, having your oncologist have, have the full picture of, uh, you know, all the medications that you're on and all things that, that could potentially, you know, impact therapy. And so it's very, that's often a very important detail. And to you, Dr. Question, another question. Could this treatment affect my ability to become pregnant or have children? If so, should I talk with a fertility specialist before cancer treatment begins? Uh, that, that's an excellent question, yes. Uh, so this is, um, this is something that does come up quite a bit, and, and certainly, you know, certain therapies we know um, uh, will affect um, fertility, like chemotherapy, and then other therapies like um, uh, some of these new ranges, for instance, um, that I described. We we have um, kind of less information about, uh, you know, specifically how they uh, affect that context of patients' lives. And, but still, I mean, certainly if, if you are about to undergo any sort of systemic treatment or the, you know, the surgical treatment, et cetera, and uh, the, the possibility of, of, of getting pregnant or, you know, fertility is something that you're, you're keeping in mind, it's definitely very important to bring up with your, um, your medical team so that they have the context of that and, you know, can recommend treatments appropriately and still potentially administer treatments for, you know, also considering fertility preservation, for instance. Thank you. Thank you very much. So, actually, it is good to talk to your healthcare team about this and to also consider a fertility specialist as well before treatment begins. So, really, let your healthcare team know what your lifestyle wishes are, what's important to you. This is very important. Um, this has been an amazing call. I want to thank all of our speakers. It's really been a phenomenal call, I must say, a great team of experts here. And I also want to thank all of you who've queued up and asked us great questions, which obviously help us to enhance the call today. Now, in closing today, I do want to go over with you um, for those of you, because I know there are many more questions in queue, and we really could stay on the call for quite a bit more time this afternoon, but we did say this would be an hour program. And so in respect to each of your time, and I also want to be sure that we refer you to places that you can go to for your questions. I think that, um, that we have partnered today with the Bladder Cancer Advocacy Network, which is a unique group. And I would say that if you have residual medical questions, things that you really um, have questions, first we want you to go to your healthcare team, of course. Your medical team, they know you the best. They really know everything about you. They have your records and all that. But we do know that you always, many of you on this call, 
you're on this call today, you're information seekers. You want to ask questions. You want to get information before you go to help your team sometimes. You can seem more informed or know more about, feel more confident in asking a question. So I do suggest that you would call, uh, contact VCAN, Cloud Cancer Advocacy Network, and they would be a terrific resource for all of you for any of these residual questions that you have that you want to ask your healthcare team. They will help to guide you in that area. But your healthcare team ultimately are your best, best people to talk to about your care. The National Cancer Institute also has a wonderful website and toll-free number as well. And it actually has a live chat feature where you can post your question and the operate, uh, the uh, information specialist will get you the answers to your questions. Again, but then you need to go back to your healthcare team. So the takeaway from today's program is if you asked a question, go back and ask your healthcare team. If you didn't get to ask a question but heard some information that was new to you, go back to your healthcare team with it. That's really important. And for those of you who wish to pursue services from Cancer Care, you may contact us. Um, cancer care um, for the to speak with one of our oncology social workers about the many different services that we provide, from individual support on the phone to counseling services, both on the phone and online, to practical and financial assistance, uh, to continue with these workshops that you're getting or, or materials or publications you can get. So there are many things that you can get from Cancer Care, and so we take you, we advise you to to contact our staff as well. Um, and you can actually call a couple of places, more than one is fine to do that. The other thing I just want to leave you with is because often issues come up in the evening and weekends, be sure you check with your healthcare team the availability of people to talk to when something does come up after hours or on weekends or holidays. It's really important that you know that information. Now, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all very much, and uh, a pleasure to have you on the call today. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop. You may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.